0: Hello, this is Sean Munger for the New Books Network, uh, Environmental Studies channel. And I have a great interview today. I'm going to be talking to Sam White, who is um, teaching at Ohio State University, about his new book, which is called A Cold Welcome, The Little Ice Age and Europe's Encounter with North America. Uh, just came out from Harvard Press this year, 2017. And it's a really great book about environmental history and the Little Ice Age uh, climate history of the early modern period. So Sam is a really great guest, and I hope you uh, enjoy his interview. He's a a terrific guy. I know him personally uh, and have worked with him. I am a historian, author, uh, teacher, and podcaster. Uh, I have my own podcast, which is called Second Decade, And it's available on iTunes, uh, and it is a historical show detailing some true stories of the 18-teens, the second decade of the 19th century. Uh, You can find it on iTunes and also at the um, website for that show, seconddecade.net, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Uh, But in the meantime, also please check out my previous interview uh, with uh, Ryan Fisher, author of Cattle Colonialism, here on the New Books Network Um, And I'm hoping to bring you more interviews with authors of environmental history books that I find really fascinating. And Sam White is definitely one of those. So let's go ahead and get into that interview. Uh, Once again, a cold welcome, The Little Ice Age, and Europe's Encounter with North America. Okay, I'm here with Sam White, who is Associate Professor at Ohio State University. And we're going to be talking about his book, A Cold Welcome, The Little Ice Age and Europe's Encounter with North America. Hello, Sam. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Really fascinating book and really great to, uh, to be talking to you.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me and I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Sure. Okay. Uh, well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, kind of your background, and uh, get us up to speed on on how you came into this project.
1: Sure. So the, there's a long story behind that. Uh, I guess I'll start uh, when I was a graduate student in history. Now, I'm in the interesting position of working on subjects and teaching classes that I never studied uh, and never took as a student myself. I got involved in uh, mostly world history and an interest in economic history back when I was a graduate student and had a bit of background in Middle East studies uh, from work I'd done as a undergraduate and, and master's student. So I was originally interested in topics relating to the early modern Middle East, to the uh, development and the fate of the Ottoman Empire. And I began a dissertation. Uh, back, I guess this would have been about 2004, uh, on a period of rural rebellion, uh, crisis, and uh, demographic and economic turmoil in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in what would be present-day Turkey. And and this this may seem like I'm far away from the present subject, but it does eventually connect up. Uh, to make a longer story, a little bit shorter now, I what I eventually found in trying to research, this uh, seemingly you know, obscure topic of uh, economic and ag- agrarian turmoil in Turkey, uh, was that what seemed to be setting off some of the worst crises uh, that often rippled all the way up to uh, political turmoil in Istanbul were actually natural disasters and, above all, periods of unusual cold and drought. I just happened to be doing this research at a time when climatologists uh, were first starting to use tree ring widths uh, throughout the eastern Mediterranean to reconstruct spring and summer drought uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. And what I saw immediately was that the fit between these climatic fluctuations and the worst times of political uh, and uh, economic turmoil were almost a perfect fit. It was almost a perfect match. That led me into looking at both the physical records that I could get a hold of, uh, which at the time actually seemed very simple compared to the much more sophisticated work that's been done in the decade or so since. Uh, But as well as the original written accounts uh, from uh, Ottoman documents and from European travelers and from dispatches that were coming from uh, Venetian ambassadors and consuls. What I discovered was that climate was a huge and neglected factor in much of early modern history. I, had no initial training in this subject, but the more that I studied it, both from the written and the physical sources, the more I knew that this was going to be a major topic. And it ended up taking my dissertation and then eventually my first book, The Climate of Rebellion in the Early Modern Empire, in a completely different direction. Uh, it, it ended up forcing me to confront this much bigger historical question of what role climate variations in the past have played in human history and whether that has any relevance for us today.
0: Wow that's really interesting. Uh so you started with the Ottoman Turks and now you've got us I mean th- this book is great. You've got us in Jamestown and in New France and uh all kinds of you know interesting things that I mean I, you know I'm trained in history but probably many of the many of the listeners remember this kind of stuff from grade school history you know John Smith and that sort of thing. Um it's just interesting how the Narratives kind of weave together.
1: Yes, so it, it uh I I guess to bring it from the first book then to the second book, uh there were both uh intellectual and practical reasons why I ended up taking a very different kind of project for my second book, uh looking at uh Colonial America and the Atlantic world. Uh after I finished my or I guess after I finished my dissertation, which became then my first book, I got a job at Oberlin College, which is about uh, 40 miles west of Cleveland. It's a a great little liberal arts college in a small town. And uh, around then, my first daughter was born. And uh, actually, my only daughter's only got, only have one. um, But uh, (laughs) uh, 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 the, uh, just being in that situation uh, where I was in a very teaching intensive position, um, had a young child, it it didn't seem practical for me to return to Turkey. So for practical reasons, it made sense to do a project that was a little bit closer to home. But there were also intellectual reasons why I chose this, the second project. In my first book, The Climate of Rebellion, I was interested in how we could see climatic impacts sort of work their way up from the ground up all the way to political crises in the Ottoman Empire. And so I was very much focused on historical sources that were coming from the imperial center, coming from the the capital, Istanbul. I I was looking largely at reports coming from the provinces and imperial orders going out to administrators uh, from the uh, imperial divan in Istanbul. So what I wanted to do for a second book was to get a sense of what these climatic fluctuations and natural disasters meant on the ground, what they meant to small groups of people or individuals, how they experienced it, and to try to get at their own perspectives and their own words. And colonial history was a great way to do that because you have these uh, often detailed personal accounts that were published because of the uh, popular interest in the progress of these colonial ventures and in what they discovered in the new world. It also was significant because it's a project that let me look at these small events in a context that really mattered. So instead of just trying to get at personal experiences uh, for their own sake, in this case, how just a few dozen or a few hundred people may have experienced climate extremes or natural disasters often had a big impact on subsequent history. So it determined which of these three competing empires, uh, British, French, and and, uh, Spanish, would manage to get the first foothold in North America. Finally, it, it, this all, it was also a topic that interested me because whereas in the present day, we know that we're experiencing climate change. It's a, you know, it's a topic in the news. It's a topic of scientific discussions, topic of policy. Uh, and, The Little Ice Age, people were not aware necessarily that they were living through a Little Ice Age. It was only really in retrospect that most people could see that there had been a significant climate change. Only a few really astute observers at the time were able to identify climatic change as opposed to just a series of bad years. With these colonists coming to North America, though, they knew in a sense they were confronting climatic change, not necessarily the Little Ice Age, but they knew after the first few voyages that the the climate was probably different in the americas and so this this allowed me to look at well how did they try to explain that what's some of the history of climate science if you will I guess the prehistory of climate science we could say how did they discover what climates are what they meant and how did they try to make sense of a climate that was that was different and new that kind of experience seemed to be the the best parallel for what we may be experiencing it, it's not just the you know the fact that climate is changing and what direct impacts it has, but how do we deal with the uncertainty? How do we try to make sense of it?
0: I, I was really interested uh, in one of the aspects at the beginning of the book, and that's something that I think climate uh, historians know, but probably general readers don't know, is that Europeans expected to find something very different in the new world than they actually did uh, and that's a theme in the beginning of your book. I wonder if you could say a couple of words about that. Yes, certainly. So there was uh, what the
1: historian Karen Kupperman originally identified as the puzzle of the American climates. Uh, th- that is, Europeans had a sense that climate should be more or less the same across the same latitudes around the world. And in fact, that the very word climate was more or less synonymous with latitude. It, it, it was a gradual evolution of meaning to bring climate into its modern sense as as in the average weather of a place. It's not that it was impossible for them to talk about climate, but they tended to use words like the airs or the seasons of a place. And this could lead to a lot of confusion as well because that that blurred the lines between climate purely as we would see the sort of statistical average of a you know meteorological phenomena, into something that was also uh, you know, vaguely, medical um, and, you know, related to how the airs affected people's bodies and constitutions and so forth. But to get back to that, that puzzle of the American climate, um, what it meant was that Europeans came over to North America in particular, expecting very different patterns of temperature and precipitation. People often forget just how much farther south most of the inhabited parts of North America are compared to Europe. Uh, we tend to think of them as being, you know, both temperate regions. But in fact, if you were to look at a map, you would see, for instance, that uh, England is entirely north, not only of the United States, but even of Newfoundland, uh, that Quebec City uh, is actually just slightly uh, you see, it's actually just slightly south of Paris, for instance. Um, so when Europeans were arriving in places like, say, Virginia, they were expecting the climate of Sicily, Uh, when they arrived in places like, uh, Maine or, you know, other parts of New England, they were expecting the climate of roughly southern France. So this led to dramatically misplaced expectations. And it was a a significant factor in the fate of many early colonial expeditions. I think, I think just as significant even as the particularly, uh, difficult seasons that they faced in the Little Ice Age.
0: Yeah, th- that was so interesting. And, and the, the difficulties that the co- early colonial expeditions faced, uh, I, I was struck, by particularly the chapters on the Spanish, because it seemed to be just kind of variations on a theme. I mean, t- toward the end, I was like, oh, here we go again. And there's some conquistador who decides, you know, oh, I'm going to go conquer this or that. And they always end up like freezing to death and eating their horses or something. And, and it seems like I never learned from from any of the previous expeditions.
1: Yes, I thought that was a, a particularly interesting aspect of the Spanish expeditions, one that I wasn't entirely expecting. I had thought that the Spanish expeditions would have come better prepared uh, because the Spanish were already there in the New World, uh, were already uh, you know dealing with colonial issues uh, and actually had a, – a, Fairly uh, extensive bureaucracy and information gathering networks, but it didn't really prepare them for the experiences in North America and for several reasons. Uh, One is that, particularly earlier on, a lot of Spanish uh, colonialism in the Americas was not really about conquering land, it was about conquering people. And I think that's something that's often forgotten. We, We tend to think about colonialism at least from the American perspective, as gathering land. Uh, and in part, this may reflect sort of a long history of writing Native Americans out of the picture, and, which is unfortunate. Um, but it also reflects the fact that, you know, that the, the population density was lower in North America. And coming a bit later, uh, there was already, in some cases, a greater impact from infectious disease. When the Spanish arrived in uh, you know Mesoamerica and in the Andes in particular, uh, population densities were higher. And what, conquest was seen largely in terms of conquering people and parceling out the, you know, labor and revenue of those people. Uh, And so the expectation was much the same in North America, where the population was lower, uh, and where that, you know, kind of colonialism simply was not going to be viable. Uh, And that expectation didn't really shift until uh, much later in the yeah, uh, you know, 16th century, really turn of the 17th century, uh, by which time uh, disease had drastically reduced uh, the population of much of Mesoamerica and the Andes, and hence shifted the nature of Spanish colonialism. Another major factor was the way in which colonial expeditions took place uh, in the Spanish context, which was about assigning rights to land, sort of monopoly rights uh, to export commodities or to collect. Uh, tribute from the uh, peoples in in newly conquered lands. And what this meant is that you tend to get each expedition as a sort of big gamble that would attract, uh, you know, particularly bold, uh, often, you know, desperate, often, I think, uh, aggressive uh, kinds of men um, who would, you know, go out there, stake their fortunes in the prospect of, you know, some great windfall that would come from conquest. It, It didn't, proceed in the same way that later English and French colonial expeditions might, based on sort of corporations of investors um, building off of prior experience, building off of greater pools of capital from investors, so they could sustain something over the long term. Um, and a third factor was just the way that expeditions in North America, as opposed to much of uh, you know ex- colonial expansion in Mexico in particular, Uh, wasn't taking place gradually across a frontier. Uh, They were, you know, moving outwards from uh, around, you know, Mexico City, the the sort of center of colonialism in in New Spain or from the Caribbean, um, you know, over the Gulf of Mexico or over the deserts of northern Mexico um, into lands where they didn't have a lot of prior experience. They couldn't slowly build up a knowledge of the land and of its climate. Uh, And so each one seemed to arrive Unprepared for what they encountered, with little sense of the environment, and there was very little really successful uh, accumulation and dissemination of information uh, that would allow them to learn from previous expeditions. So I was actually surprised by how difficult it was for them to really improve their um, you know th- their methods, their preparations uh, over the course of actually several generations between you know the first uh, expeditions of uh, Juan Ponce de Leon uh, all the way down to. Uh, say yeah the, the turn of the seventeenth century
0: it also seems like they they ran into a lot of just kind of plain bad luck uh, I mean, clearly, they were unprepared, and they made a lot of a lot of really poor choices. Um, I, I was struck by how many colonial expeditions it seems like the and and you make the point that the kind of the low point of this or the coldest, harshest point of this period was about. 1598 to about 1607. And it seems like that just by poor coincidence coincided with the time where so many of these expeditions just happened to jump off.
1: Yes, yes. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of it was just uh, from the European perspective, just remarkable bad luck. I mean, in in retrospect, we can look at uh, when the greatest droughts took place, when the coldest winters uh, arrived, particularly in the wake of large tropical volcanic eruptions. Uh, and very oftentimes they coincided with large uh, colonial efforts. In the English and French case, uh, this was bad uh, luck, of course, but there was also, I think, a structural element to it, which is that, uh, as I try to argue in one of my chapters, the, these uh, climatic fluctuations, particularly those that were driven by Uh, large tropical volcanic eruptions, were uh, global, uh, and particularly across the Northern Hemisphere. So in some ways, the the fact that the English and French happened to make these big new pushes in colonial ventures in North America during the late 1590s and the first decade of the 17th century was also in part a response to crisis in Spain itself, uh, which was driven in no small part by climatic fluctuations and natural disasters. So in other words, in in the 1590s, you start to see uh, a series of really uh, just terrible seasons uh, across much of Europe, uh, which drive uh, harvest failures, uh, food shortages, uh, price spikes, in some cases, real famines and the outbreak of of disease that often follows. And these hit Spain particularly hard uh, in a way that really forces Spain to... Retrench its colonial commitments, and in fact, to declare bankruptcy at one point. And so, this this becomes an opportunity for the uh, French and English to move in on Spanish possessions in North America. Um, but to you know their misfortune, uh, they arrive still uh, when the climate is undergoing a particularly uh, cold, dry phase, uh, driven in part by these uh, tropical volcanic eruptions.
0: Yeah, the interplay between. All three of the empires I found very fascinating because usually the story is presented kind of compartmentalized where they're, you know, oh, let's talk about the English and let's talk about the French. And, and I think you really kind of get a good sense of how they all work together. And it really was kind of a a much more globalized world, even at that time, early 17th century, than we typically think of. Would you agree with that? oh yes definitely and and i was quite surprised when i first moved into
1: this uh, topic that there hadn't already really been a history that tried to look at uh, all three of these empires in their interconnected struggles uh and in particular the uh, almost simultaneous foundings of Jamestown Quebec and Santa Fe the these you know three Original colonies that largely staked out the territorial claims and in some cases the, the cultural heritage of you know, three different parts of North America. So, uh, you know, I think that has a lot to do with just the way in which historians have traditionally gone about uh, Atlantic history. Uh, you know, most people specialize in one empire, one set of sources, uh, one language, uh, but there's a lot to be gained by taking a broader perspective. And I, I'm hardly the only historian to do that. I mean, Atlantic history has become much more. Uh, cosmopolitan much more global uh in in recent years but uh in this particular case uh th- th- this was still um a really you know uh, ripe topic uh, to analyze um you know the way in which these three competing empires came together um, at this one at this one moment and so much of that story really came down to these uh climatic driven disasters and and crises on both sides of the atlantic
0: Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, let's talk about Jamestown. That, that's a uh, uh, key part of your book. And I, I had never seen the story of Jamestown. I mean, we kind of know a little bit about it. Uh, again, I'm kind of thinking back to grade school history, which is sort of the the John Smith Pocahontas story. We're usually told that and then the rest of it's kind of shorthanded. It's usually like, oh, this settlers suffered several harsh winters and then eventually they, you know, built a colony and, and, and you really flesh out that, what happens in that shorthand in, in a way that I think many people uh, are not going to expect. Yes. Uh, yeah. While well, I tried to,
1: you know, treat every uh, aspect of the, of this story. It was really clear for me fairly early on that the Jamestown story was going to be uh, the most compelling in part because there's already going to be some familiarity among most American readers, uh, and so you know th- there's I think the, the desire to to know more to get to this the story behind the story that you learn in in grade school in particular, um, but also it was it was just such a remarkable um, you know almost incredible story. I mean, it's one that would be hard to believe if the evidence were not so clear from so many sources. And what I I found especially compelling with it was how much uh, new information from the natural sciences and from archaeology could help us flesh out that story. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's one of those remarkable facts that, that the original Jamestown settlement wasn't properly excavated uh, until starting in the late 1990s, and there are still continuous new finds coming out of that site. It's one, in fact, of several uh, early settlement attempts that has only recently been uh, properly uh, discovered and excavated. And so, even though this is a story that in many cases we we think we know we have some some general knowledge of there's there's always so much more to be told as new evidence is literally unearthed uh, and analyzed in new ways
0: i found that just really well done and and, and really interesting the way you presented that um but it, i think it's also interesting how jamestown and the other colonies don't Stand in isolation, not, and I'm not just talking about the interplay of the empires. But you have a lot of things about the failed colonies, um, really of all uh, all of the empires. And, and could you say a little bit about those? Because I mean, again, we hear sort of at the grade school level or, or some passing familiarity with you know the lost colony and the you know the thing carved into the into the the trunk of the tree at, at Roanoke and that kind of thing. But uh, this is a story that you also flesh out in an interesting way and, and was that harder to research than the colonies that actually survived
1: so it in part it depends on uh, just just the by chance how much information was left about each one uh, and in part it, it it's about whether or not the original location has been discovered and excavated so in the case of the lost rono colony uh, it, it appears that archaeologists have roughly narrowed down where it was but it hasn't been it, you know, precisely identified and excavated. Uh, and of course, there are inevitable gaps of information uh, because the final lost colonists were never discovered again and therefore could never tell their story. There's more information about it, though, than I think many people realize uh, because of information gathered by the Spanish. And I was not the first to discover that. Uh, I was relying largely on the work of past historians who had looked into it. Um, but it hasn't been as closely examined, I think, by English language historians, uh, as as it could have, uh, especially compared to other colonies such as Jamestown. In other cases, uh, you know, there there is often a lot of interesting new information that has come out. So the uh, attempted Spanish colony, excuse me, French colony at uh, St. Croix or, or Dutchett Island uh, between present-day Maine and New Brunswick uh, is, is a good example of one where, you know, recent excavation uh, combined with uh, the you know gradual accumulation of incidental documentary evidence by French and uh, French-Canadian historians has allowed us to really get a very detailed look at a particular colony that I think is is one that's mostly forgotten uh, by most Americans, Uh, in part because it was French and not English who were there, uh, but also just in part because it was an example of a really uh, gruesome failure uh, and the kind that doesn't really make for good elementary school lessons, let's say.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I was fascinated by the story of the uh, failed English colony on the coast of Maine, uh, which I guess I had heard mentioned, but I knew virtually nothing about it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So this is the uh, Popham Colony, uh, sometimes referred to as the Sagadahoc Colony, and it was uh, an attempted colony on the coast of Maine. It was actually the partner venture with the uh, of the Virginia Company. Um, so it was meant to be a you know a second and, and really equally important uh, venture to go along with the Jamestown Colony. Uh, for various reasons, uh, accidents that not to do with weather, but just to, to do with uh, sailing and running into uh, Spanish ships, uh, the voyage was about a, a year late in getting started. And when it did, it just happened to arrive in what was probably one of the five coldest North Atlantic winters, um, of the last, uh, 500 years at least. Uh, this was the winter of 1607 to 08. And the experience of that winter, uh, combined with the rather poor prospects for uh, profit for the colony, um, not only spelled the doom of that particular venture, but it really seems to have had a major impact on how investors saw the viability of New England uh, versus Virginia. In fact, I think it, it was really key perhaps in the survival of the Jamestown venture uh, precisely because it shifted a lot of funding and attention away from New England, which was probably a, a more viable option uh, given that its colonists had a much greater uh, life expectancy uh, than, than the rather dim prospects in Virginia. Uh, and, but you know, it was just seen as, as as too cold as too unprofitable uh, and so its colonization would have to await uh, well, you know, the uh, Pilgrims and the Massachusetts Bay Company um, adventures driven in part by, uh, political and religious differences, as opposed to uh, a simple you know, profit-making venture, uh, as originally drove the Virginia Company.
0: That's another fascinating aspect. Uh, and what I was just thinking about was the difference between the, the most of the ventures that you describe are seem to be motivated almost exclusively by uh, economic considerations, whereas the later some of the later ventures, not that much later, but later ventures did seem to have religious or political implications uh, do you think this was a a factor in the survival of some of the later colonies I, I i don't i I'm just kind of thinking out loud in that sense but but something that you said triggered that thought
1: so the i i I guess I shouldn't make the dichotomy too uh um sharp here in this case uh i mean the virginia company survived in part because in its attempt to get a, a new charter and raise new funding that eventually uh, rescued the colony in 1610 uh it did try to appeal to uh nationalist and religious sentiments as well uh, so there the, there's not a necessarily a, a strict divide and also even those that even those later ventures that um, were founded largely on uh, political and religious grounds also had to at least be able to uh, you know cover costs or, or continue to attract enough capital to stay alive um, however, uh, I think it was important uh, that after a time the backers of big colonial ventures had to realize that they were not going to return an immediate profit uh, that that they were going to have to be supported uh, for a significant amount of time uh, and it, it wasn 't going to be you know, either a quick conquest of tribute paying subjects uh, or an immediate seizure of valuable commodities, that there was going to be a, a you know slower process involved of getting settlers established and eventually trying to turn a profit from that. Um, and in part, later ventures survived because they were not as unlucky. Uh, and even though really theories about climate might've been slow to change, I think, uh, practical information uh, about the more extreme continental seasons of North America probably did eventually filter back. And we can see this in some later pamphlets.
0: Mm -hmm. It seems like just the kind of, you mentioned the economic, kind of some changing economic ideas. It seems like the Spanish, to go back to them, uh, they were really in it for a very, at least at the beginning, for a very, very short term kind of gain. They were mainly looking for Gold, you know, gold and silver mines and that kind of thing. Whereas the English and, and French seem to have, at least later, kind of more of an investment type of strategy as opposed to just, you know, go in and strip the land clean of anything valuable and, and then uh you know enslave the population as laborers for extractive industries, basically. It, it, am I painting that too broadly or or is there some validity there?
1: Well, I, I think I think there's a great truth to that. I mean, I, I, again, I, I would stress that in the Spanish in the early stages, they're largely thinking about conquering tribute-paying subjects uh, and basically gathering capital where the individuals on the venture uh, would, in many cases, stake their life savings. Uh, and on the promise that if a conquest was successful, uh, that they would be rewarded with a share of the tribute from these these uh, new subjects of, of the conquered uh, country. And by the end of the 16th century, um, really as the, with with the demographic changes in uh, New Spain uh, and with the expansion of silver mining in particular, the hopes, especially in the Southwest, increasingly are pinned on finding uh, gold and silver mines. And I, I don't think it's necessarily all about, uh, you know, sort of short-term rapacious uh, uh you know, enslavement of the population, it's more about the fact that these are it's still individual investors, um, particularly in, in the case of the leader of the expedition, uh, Juan de Oñate, who who have to be able to recoup uh, the heavy investments that they made in the venture personally, as opposed to having joint stock companies uh, that bring in a, a wider range of wealthy investors, who in many cases can, while well, they might be impatient to make a profit, uh, can wait a little bit longer, uh, who's immediate uh, uh, debts might be repaid by bringing in new investors. And that, that just didn't seem to be as much an option in the Spanish case. And so what you see is that in between 1607 and uh, 10, as the Spanish empires is effectively going bankrupt, and this is driven in part by a, a completely unrelated accident, the failure of mercury production at the Juan Cabalica mines, which was necessary for smelting silver from Potosí. Um, But in any case, during that period of of fiscal crisis, uh, the the Spanish officials decide, in fact, that they would pull out uh, Spanish Florida and New Mexico altogether. And the only reason they end up staying in uh, is because those officials on the spot and uh, missionaries on the spot make a case that it would simply be unconscionable to abandon uh, converted Christian uh, Indians in both those colonies. So... In those cases, too, it's ultimately a non-economic motive that ends up saving the colonies, although they never get the same kind of investment uh, that they might have otherwise had they been seen as profitable.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating because just the differing economic kind of technology that you see behind some of these ventures, uh, Spanish and French being more kind of uh, joint stock companies, whereas the Spanish seemed like they were just a little bit more kind of shoestring, uh, you know, get a rich guy and find, uh, you know, find someone to lead, to lead an expedition. Uh, I, I just find the differing mindsets on how they approached colonization. I mean, there were certainly some similarities, but the differences there are really fascinating.
1: Yes. And I, I you know, I think, I think we could, uh, you know, try to look for reasons why that might've been. Uh, and it's been a Spanish case. Uh, some of these, earlier practices uh, were related to practices during the Reconquista of the Spanish peninsula itself. Um, Others seem really designed to capture the personal wealth or crusading spirit of a lot of Spanish aristocrats. Uh, They, they reflected, um, you know, practices going back in some cases to the 1400s or the 1500s when finance was simply less sophisticated altogether than it would become by the end of the 16th century. Um, And in, but by the turn of the 17th century, uh, a lot of this also just reflects the sheer desperation of the Spanish Empire, uh, because it had been driven to basically on the edge of, uh, perpetual edge of bankruptcy by the extremely expensive wars of Philip II uh, during the late 1500s, particularly wars trying to preserve Spanish control of the Low Countries. So in this case, it's, it's a different area of the Spanish Empire that's um, also affecting uh, colonial ventures in the Americas, and, and for that reason, it, it really becomes impossible for Spain to find other ways uh, to back these ventures financially. Uh, they really have to rely on what private capital is available, and particularly that promise uh, of you know relatively quick wealth that you know, that might attract aristocrats to you know, stake their own fortunes in these kinds of conquests. It, it was really remarkable, uh, looking at, uh, I guess there was still a, a significantly different mentality, uh, if we were to compare, say, Juan de Oñate, who eventually conquers, uh, New Mexico, uh, compared to many of the other, uh, French and English colonists. I th- he really was, as another historian has referred to him, the, the last conquistador, at least in North America. I mean, he still very much had, uh, uh, chaotic ideas about, uh, noble, uh, you know, conquest of, uh, you know uh, of of savages by by uh, aristocratic Spaniards and it it really shows in some of the incidental writings that we have from him, including letters back to the vice for mhm
0: mhm, yeah, I found his story really uh really interesting as well and and he did seem to be kind of the last of the breed uh, shifting gears here i'm just i'm curious uh how did you research this I and mean, what kind of sources were you looking at uh, which archives? Uh, did you find the most interesting things in? Can you just tell us a little bit about the process of, of researching and writing this book?
1: Sure. So first, I, I have to thank the John Carter Brown Library in in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, uh, for support. Well, it was in those two rare book libraries that I was able to find most of the printed sources. Uh, so uh, I owed a great deal of debt in this project to many past historians uh, who had devoted their entire careers to each one uh, of these expeditions. Uh, and in some cases, these were academic historians. some cases, uh, this, this research in, and uh, gathering original documentation actually fell to uh, you know, amateur historical societies, uh and others who just simply had a passion uh for colonial history. However, uh there I also had other types of sources that those past historians could not have uh, that enabled me to complete a wider uh comparative and in some cases scientific project that they couldn't have. So um in addition to the the time gathering that printed material, I was also able to draw on the uh Indies archives in Seville. I only spent a brief amount of time there myself, personally, uh, going through documents and paper. Um, and I spent much more time looking through vast amounts of that archive now that have been scanned. Uh, many of the most important registers, including, for instance, letters between uh, governors of Spanish Florida and uh, New Spain, have all been digitized now and are, are all available. Um, and that made my task, much, much easier, allowed me to go through, uh, you know, vast amounts of documentation uh, at home in front of my own computer, uh, which is not quite as fun as being in Seville, but often much more practical. Uh, At the same time, there are other projects underway to digitize information, uh, including the uh, Cibola project out of the University of California, Berkeley, uh, which has gone back through and uh, scanned and transcribed and uh, discussed a huge amount of the documentation now on the spanish conquest of new mexico and other adventures in the southwest uh, and uh, moreover i was able to draw on a, a huge amounts of new archaeological information as we've already talked about including several new archaeological reports of places that had not been excavated uh, until about the last 20 years regarding the climate information uh, this was just part of an ongoing project for me ever since i wrote my first book on the ottoman empire uh, before that book actually was even published, I created a small informal organization uh, called the Climate History Network. I did that along with a, a colleague of mine who's now at Georgetown University, Dagomar Groot. And as part of that project, we've been trying to keep up with new research and developments related to climate and history, whether that's new high-resolution paleoclimatology, that is to say the reconstruction of you know, annual or decadal temperature precipitation using proxies like tree rings. Uh, or new work in climate modeling, or in uh, climate reconstruction from historical sources, and I've kept an ongoing database of that research now for several years, which is, is, has bloomed into thousands of sources. Uh, and so, ha- having already been having already done that kind of work um, and being part of a sort of the the ongoing process of historical climate reconstruction, um, I was able to use that basis and some of the expertise I've acquired there to get a better sense of the climate fluctuations in North America and apply those to the historical picture.
0: That's great. I'm uh, familiar with Climate History Network and and I know uh, uh, Dagomar a little bit. Uh, Great work that you guys are doing. It's really fascinating. Um, So that is, I think, a tremendous resource that I think is going to become increasingly more important for environmental historians, especially those dealing with climate, um, the Huntington library. I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I, I did some research there as well. Really great place. Uh, some fascinating, really fascinating documents. Um, I don't know if you remember the uh, the t- the tilapia tacos at the, the little cafe there were were some of my favorites. <laughs> it was pretty good. So, yes, I mean, the Huntington Library. It, it's almost embarrassing to admit I did
1: this this research in the Huntington Library because I, I was basically writing about people freezing and starving to death <laughs> from the comfort of what must be about the closest thing to paradise on earth. I mean, the Huntington gardens and uh, in, in library is, is just a beautiful place. And I really just cannot thank them enough for uh, hosting scholars like me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, and they do really have some amazing sources there. And, and I mean, I, we were there at different times, but I was also doing climate research there regarding early 19th century. Uh, and there really are some, some tremendous sources there. Um, Something else you said in, in mentioning the Climate History Network. I mean, this is particularly in the later stages of your book, and you've mentioned it already here, that this is really kind of a climate change story, not, not just in isolation, but also has some implications for our current period of anthropogenic uh, climate change. Could you kind of talk about the, the connections there?
1: Certainly. So while, I, you know, there, much has changed in terms of the the nature of climate change, it's now driven by human activity primarily, and it is getting much warmer rather than cooler. Also, the pace of climate of modern-day global warming is considerably faster than even the most severe phases of the Little Ice Age. However, what I, I think really unites the two is the human perceptions and experiences. While our technologies have changed, our vulnerabilities have changed, um, Our our psychology perhaps has not changed as much. It was very difficult for these colonists going from Europe to North America to get their minds around both a new climate and a changing climate. It was hard to know at any turn uh, whether disasters they were facing or simply uh, you know, random events, uh, strange occurrences that they didn't have to prepare for again, uh, or a sign of what was to come. And in that respect, I think we're in a very similar position now. Every time we encounter another extreme, another 500-year flood or storm, uh, we are faced with the same question. Is it just chance? Is it just bad luck this time? Uh, Or is it global warming? Is it a sign of what we're going to have to face? And how we answer that question is going to determine a lot about the impact of climate change in the century ahead. There are dangers in overreacting. There are dangers in saying, you know, because of recent floods in Houston, uh, the city is no longer viable, that we need to pull out. We, We could create the very disaster that we fear in that way. But there are dangers, too, perhaps even greater dangers, in just dismissing each event as one bit of bad luck, one bit of random chance. When we should know that those kinds of events are going to become increasingly likely uh, in the years and decades ahead, so in, in that way, I see the, the the strongest parallels between their experience and ours, and I can't say that there is one clear policy answer that comes from this, but I think by reading more historical experiences, uh, we might just have a bit more uh, well, wisdom in you know how we deal with climate changes ahead.
0: I think that's a great point and one that I've stressed too. I mean, I, I have taught history of climate change and and I work in a, a climate change related fields. Um, and I usually come at it from a perspective that most people don't have that you and I have, which is a historical perspective. And that's one thing that I continually stress is we can learn something from the way that people in the past have dealt with climate change, even if it's not the same climate change. I mean, the, the thought process is, I think there are some similarities there uh, that, that that's very interesting. So I'm I'm really glad that you made that point. Um, what else do you want people to know about about uh, your book? And and what what is there anything else that you want them to take away from it that we haven't talked about?
1: That's a good question. I, I think one thing that that could get lost in in all the discussion about uh climate is that this is also just a fascinating story uh that this really is the story of how you know the European colonization and eventually the United States and Canada uh got started and it's a story that is oftentimes horrifying and and grim uh but it is just dramatic uh and and compelling and i've tried to tell it with as much um you know, uh, uh, interest in drama as I could without uh, making it melodramatic. Um, I've tried to really capture just how fascinating I found these stories, uh, in reading them. I mean, many things that I thought, uh, just, just seemed unbelievable until there was really strong confirmation from multiple lines of evidence, physical and written, uh, to confirm, uh, what really happened here. And I, I would just encourage readers, um, to look at this. Both as a lesson, both, both as an insight from history, but also just as a fascinating tale and much more fascinating probably uh, than the
0: version of colonial history that they learned in in grade school. That was certainly true of me. I mean, I, I thought it was a, a wonderful book and it was really well written. Ha- having you know read – you've written a lot of stuff it and a lot of really, really good stuff, but I do think this is your best book so far. So, oh, thank you. Uh, so what are you working on now? What are you, uh, uh, what are you researching? Where's the story of, of uh, the Little Ice Age or, or climate history taking you next? So uh, I have two projects that are uh, ongoing now. Um,
1: one is, I guess you could say, a more technical uh, field. Uh, I am I, I'm part of a group uh, that has recently been awarded a so-called uh, working group. Um, through an organization known as Past Global Changes, or PAGES. And our goal over the next three years will be to work on methods where we can improve uh, climate reconstruction and understanding of climate impacts, drawing on uh, the archives of societies, basically you have written sources and physical sources left by humans. Uh, so this, this is going to be a a more technical project in which we see how we can improve both our standards for collection and analysis of that data, um, our statistical approaches uh, for reconstruction, and how we can combine those two with other forms of climate reconstruction from uh, physical evidence, such as tree rings and ice cores. Uh, At the same time, in thinking about a historical research project, I'm interested in the bigger question of climate, natural disasters, and migration. Um, although this is very early stages, uh, what I would eventually like to do is look not only at whether climate fluctuations may have driven, uh, migration, particularly transatlantic migration over the last several centuries, but also whether that migration was seen as climate driven, whether the idea of a climate refugee, uh, is, you know, it, it, one that has historical roots, one that makes historical sense. And the fact is that I just don't know the answer to those questions yet. I just don't know whether it makes sense to say um, that climate has been a major factor in international migration uh, over over historical time, um, and or whether it makes sense to think about that migration in terms of climate refugees.
0: Very interesting that that's Uh, And I think that's cutting edge because, again, just just as you pointed out, uh, there are so many parallels between what we're going through now and what may have happened in the past, what did happen in the past, and then exploring what may have happened and how we can kind of reconstruct it historically. Climate refugees in the past is really interesting, fascinating topic. Well, I think we've uh, taken a lot of your time, um, but is there anything else that, uh, that you'd like to say? I guess all I could say is that for uh, listeners who are interested in
1: finding out more about climate history and seeing what kind of new research and new publications are coming out in the field, I'd encourage you to visit uh, our, the Climate History Network. Uh, if you just Google that or go to climatehistory.net, uh, you'll find it there. And that should give you links to new resources information and a uh, more comprehensive bibliography of the field.
0: I can vouch for that. It's a great resource. I've used it myself and it's really interesting to just kind of poke around. So a uh, great job on that. Both you and, and Dagobar have, have really done a fantastic job. So so thank you very so much. much. Okay, well, thank you very much, Sam. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I'm sure the readers are going to be very interested to read uh, Cold Welcome. And this, this is just out in the last couple of months, isn't it? to it come out was it October or September? Uh, October? Yes, October. Yeah, so brand new book. Um, and it's really, really a great, a really great book. So I want to thank you for your time uh, and wish you the best of luck with your, with your new projects. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot, Sam. We'll uh, I will catch up with you, hopefully, in a, in a future episode of, of this podcast. So thanks very much.